When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and will be a host today. Today, we'll be talking to Walter, Walter Schinkel about the new book, Ant Architecture, the Wonder, Beauty, and Science of Underground Nests, an unprecedented look at the complex and beautiful world of underground ant architecture. Walter Schenkel has spent most of his career investigating the hidden subterranean realms of ants' nests. Offering a new, unique look at how simple methods can lead to pioneering science, ant architecture addresses the unsolved mysteries of underground ant nests while charting new directions for tomorrow's research and reflects on the role of beauty in nature and the joys of shoestring science. Well, Walter, welcome to the show. Thank you. So as we're going through the very unprecedented and unusual times of the pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. Well, this is a little ironic because um, I was retired when the pandemic started and I was mostly working at home or out in the field without any without much human contact. So I found that the pandemic affected me actually very little. My life just sort of went on. I saw other people having all kinds of problems and issues. And of course I followed it in the news, but on my, for my own part, uh, it, it had a rather minor effect on my, on my life. Did it not affect your travel, for example? Uh, yes. But uh, I wasn't doing that much traveling. Uh, well, we did have one incident when my wife and I returned from California early in 2020. Uh, she got COVID on the airplane, so um, that put a damper on our life for a while. I hope she recovered well. Yes, she did. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Okay. Um, well, I'm an old guy. I uh, was born in what's now the Czech Republic, 
back in 1940 and uh, came to the United States, obviously with my parents, my, my family when I was about seven, and then was mostly educated in the USA, went to college here, got my PhD at the University of California in Berkeley and uh, have worked at Florida State University for since 1970 and I retired in 2013. So that's my basic course of life. And how did you get interested in what you do? That is actually easy to answer. I was always interested in nature and I, uh, even as a, as a young child, I, I showed a great attraction for all things natural. Um, I looked at, you know, I collected flowers, I looked at insects and birds and so on and so forth. So that was kind of a natural thing for me to go into. Now, um, I went to college in an era when uh, the physiology and uh, molecular uh, fields were beginning to become dominant. And I, I actually went to graduate school in biochemistry, but then discovered quite soon that biochemistry didn't satisfy my need to, uh, to handle and work with, with real creatures that I could see and touch and watch and so on. And I, I couldn't imagine a life of looking at turbid suspensions and test tubes uh, and being very happy about that. So uh, with my strong background in chemistry, I discovered the field of um, chemical communication and started working on a chemical defensive system of, of beetles, the tenebrionid beetles. They have a, a very potent, stinky defense. And there's about, oh, I think a thousand species in the United States that I could work with. Uh, then I heard a talk by uh, E.O. Wilson back when I was in the middle of my graduate program and he talked about chemical communication in ants, which is a field that he had just, uh, I guess, developed and made some real progress in. And I thought, this is, this is really cool. These ants are great. So when I got my first job at Florida State, I decided I wanted to work on ants because their chemical communication system was, uh, was by far the most complex and interesting. So I started working on the most obvious ants, which was uh, fire ants. Uh, they're here in the southeastern US. They're very abundant. They're easy to collect. They have no shortage of material. And uh, they're easy to maintain in the lab. And they're sort of a general ant. They're not highly specialized. So that was a good choice. And then um, I gradually, my interests gradually uh, widened. And I began to work on other aspects of fire ant biology and eventually uh, on other ants as well, other species of ants. And uh, that's how I got to be where I am. I live in an area with uh, abundant and easily accessible ant fauna. We have about 100 species around the Tallahassee area. And uh, so there's, there's an endless source of of interesting ads that have kept me busy for 
decades. You already mentioned that E.O. Wilson really inspired you to start with ants. So I was wondering whether there are any mentors, for example, along your way who really supported you. Well, uh, there certainly were people that inspired me. Ed Wilson was one, and he actually became a friend. As you know, he died uh, just recently on the 26th of December. Um, so he was, as a friend, of course, he, uh, we talked about ants, you can imagine. Then uh, Bert Heldobler, who was uh, a colleague of Wilson's, was another inspiration. He was, he's a, a very gifted uh, ant natural historian and, and experimental science. So his, his work was quite inspirational. Um, beyond that, uh, well, I had colleagues that worked in related or similar fields, but I don't think I could say that there were any mentors in the, in the usual sense. I did have a major professor who, who with, from whom I learned how to do really good, careful experiments. I had many discussions with him about designing experiments and what, what a good experiment requires. So that, that was kind of a mentorship. What would you say to our younger, younger listeners or early career researchers? Well, um, I guess there's several things I would say. One is it's, if, you're, if you want to establish a long-term satisfying career, you have to carve out your own niche and uh, to do something on the periphery of, of major fields is, is, a good, is a good strategy because then uh, that's yours. You can, you can develop it uh, on your own and, uh, and you don't have that much competition. If you go into some really hot field, then you're likely to have a lot of competition from other people. And I'm not saying competition's bad, but I've always been a little bit of, a, of an outsider. And I guess that suited me best to work on fields that other people were not paying a lot of attention to. And if you look at the, the science that I've done, you'll see a lot of it has that kind of characteristic. The other thing that, that everybody always says is, you should have a, a passion for your, your subject. And uh, what that means is that a life in science is, um, science is a largely self-rewarding activity. And you have to be able to motivate yourself and to gain rewards uh, from what you do. Because it's not just, you don't get a lot of social rewards as you do in many other professions. So you have to be a self-motivated person. And uh, the best way to do that is to be passionate about your subject that will keep you going. So the subject you are definitely passionate about is ants, as, as we understood. And your latest book is Ant Architecture, The Wonder, Beauty and Science of Underground Nests. So how did you come to writing it? Well, it was a natural outgrowth of the research I've been doing for the last uh, 20, 25 years. Uh, I've, I told you I got more broadly interested in ant biology. And 
late uh, during my during my career, I had made a couple of attempts at casting ant nests, um, you know, to fill the hollow space and see what that looked like. The first time was way back in 1970 when I used, um, uh, I got the idea from uh, the dissections that we did in laboratories where you, you buy a frog, it comes injected with uh, blue latex in the venous system and red latex in the arterial. And then, you know, you, you, you dissect it and you can see which system you're looking at. And I thought, well, latex, you know, hardening latex. Um, let's see if we can make a cast out of that. So I bought some latex and I had an undergraduate student who was enthusiastic about trying it out. And he made a cast of uh, an ant species in his backyard and dug it up. It was about five feet deep. And he got actually quite a nice cast. The only problem was that it was latex, so it was floppy. And um, it, it sat around in a drawer in my lab for many years, and then eventually it sort of disappeared. Now, uh, much later, in the mid-'80s, I um, learned about a casting material, a dental plaster, and I made um, a fire ant uh, cast with it. And it was a big surprise because I had not I, – I thought I understood, I imagined correctly, the – um, the, the way that nest was organized underground, but it turns out that wasn't the case at all, that uh, it was actually a much more organized uh, nest than I had expected. And then from there on, I, I went and made a few more uh, casts of other ant species. And then <clears throat> about the year 2000, I decided to... Uh, to make nest architecture uh, the center of my research, and the book is is my is the story of of uh, how that developed, all the the problems I had to solve, and the inspirations, and uh, and uh, um, yes, the, 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 a lot of it is is uh, coming up with methods and and uh, devices to get the information that. That, that you want, that I needed. You cover a lot of really fascinating science in your book. So can we start from basics? So could you explain what kind of creatures are ants? Ants are essentially uh, social wasps. They, they evolve from uh, a solitary wasp about 140 million years ago. Uh, and from that that first ancestral ant, which probably formed a, a, a small colony with uh, only a few of her own offspring. Uh, all the modern ant uh, species evolved from that uh, ancestral wasp. So sociality evolved because uh, this ancestral ant uh, probably made an underground nest, uh, a small a vertical shaft with a, a chamber or two at the bottom. And then she fed her, her offspring progressively. That is, she would go out, find prey, bring it down into the nest and feed the larvae. So 
she was in contact with them throughout their growth period. And then that continued after the first generation or maybe even the second generation of her brood emerged as adults. So you have several generations of, um, of ants living in the, in the same nest. Now, the other quirk of, of ants, wasps, and bees is that the way that, they, uh, that, the, that sex is determined during development, and it's what's called the haplodiploid sex determination. That is, uh, males develop from unfertilized eggs and females from fertilized eggs. Now, I won't go into the math, but the consequence of that is that uh, sisters within an ant colony are 75% related to one another, but only 25% to their brothers and only 50% and 50 to their mothers. So an ant can gain uh, fitness, that is, uh, can produce related offspring by helping her sisters produce, to, helping her sisters to reproduce. That um, she can gain as much, uh, she can pass as many genes onto the next generation. Or, no, I shouldn't say that. She can pass on more genes, more of her own genes that she shares with her sisters by helping her sisters uh, reproduce rather than reproducing herself. And that's basically a description of a modern ant colony. It's just a big pile of sisters and a mother, and they're all sharing the production of, of offspring. What kind of techniques do you use to study ants? Oh, there's many, many techniques. Uh, <laughs> uh, gosh, that's... Uh, a big question. Well, ants, of course, you can observe ants and, you know, even little kids do that. They watch ants and see what they do and so on and so forth. So, yeah, behavioral studies would be one way. Um, uh, you can also go into the field and see where the different species occur and how they interact and uh, uh, so on and so forth. And then I, I have a bias towards experimental work. I'm, uh, I like to do, I like to design and carry out experiments because an experiment will reveal cause and effect. Whereas uh, if you do ecological work, that's mostly correlational or for that matter, behavioral work, that's mostly correlational. You really, you really can't uh, deduce cause and effect that way. So that's what I've done uh, in a lot of my career. I've done uh, heavily experimental science. And some of the experiments are kind of uh, mind-boggling. Actually, they're, they're big. <laughs> and if I had a better imagination, I might not have gotten into those projects because, you know, they turned out to be a lot more effort and time and difficulty than I had thought. So in your book, you look at the nests of ants. So can you tell us what is so special about those nests? Well, one of the obvious things that, well, I guess that the response to that is twofold. First, uh, we had very little idea of what the ants were doing underground. You can see the soil they bring up. 
and obviously they are nesting in the ground, but uh, there was really no idea of what what the spaces that they excavated looked like. So it was a, an unseen world that I wanted to make visible. Uh, it turned out to be that ant nests are actually quite beautiful if you can uh, turn the hollow space into a cast, then you see that they're, they're, they're beautiful objects, even in the artistic sense and the aesthetic sense. And that was a, a strong uh, motivation for me. I've always liked to work with, with real objects and uh, with beautiful objects. Um, that's true, not just for nest architecture, but uh, much of the uh, morphological work I did. The reason I like to work on insects is because I find them to be beautiful objects, you know, just in their own right, aesthetically interesting and beautiful. So, um, of course, then working on nest architecture, it's, it's also an aspect, a very important aspect of ant biology and one that had not been explored uh, hardly at all before I started doing this. And I think one of the things that I was able to show is that the, the nest itself is an integral part of the biology of the ant colony. It's, it's uh, an extension of the, of, the, of the phenotype. It's part and parcel of what that ant species is. It's not just the workers that make up the colony or the queen and the brood and so on. It's also the nest that they construct, that they live in, and that organizes their activities and facilitates the activities. All those are part and parcel of the ants, uh, uh, of each species is biology. So uh, since it was an unexplored part, and I, I told you that I like to do things that are a little bit of an outside, uh, outside the field, it was, uh, it was a very attractive area for me. So how do ants design, if I can use this word, their nests? Well, <clears throat> that's, that's a big mystery and a deep question. They don't design in the sense that human architects would design a building and draw a blueprint. The ant nest is constructed socially by a number of workers often a very large number of workers, each of, each of which is programmed to respond uh, to, uh, to other ants, to the growing nest and to the, to the soil, to the environment in particular ways. And uh, the aggregate, the outcome of, of this kind of interactive and behavioral programs is uh, the self-organization of the construction or the excavation, I should say, of a nest. So the, the, the nests differ among species uh, and, and those differences arise uh, in the course of evolution. But you have to remember that it's not the nest that evolves, it's the 
uh, behavior of the workers and the way the inner the, the way each worker is is itself programmed, what's in place in its nervous system, and also how they interact with other workers and how they respond to the environment that they're in. So the whole business uh, is self-organizing, but it but the but the um, the plan, if you want, doesn't reside in one place. It's actually the it's the the emergent outcome of of the behaviors and the interactions of the workers. If that made any sense, it's kind of a squishy concept, but that's the way we think about it. So, in your book, you feature a couple of those illustrations of the. Um, um cast hollowed out spaces in an ant nest. So can you just uh, describe to our listeners what we should imagine? Oh, what, what, what part are you referring to here? So how do those nests look inside? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, the first thing to remember is that I've made the, the space visible by filling it with a casting material. So what you're looking at is essentially like a photographic positive made from a negative. And uh, what the object you see was hollow space in the nest. Now, uh, most ants have uh, a very, a shared basic structure, which is probably descendant from the ancestral ant nest, the first ant, which is that, the, the vast majority of ant nests are composed of more or less vertical shafts in the soil that connect uh, more or less horizontal chambers. And the chambers are usually flattened like pancakes. Um, and that describes a very large proportion of modern ant nests. Now, the, the way that they differ is in is that each of these pieces, each of these descriptors, if you want, of the ant nest can evolve independently from the others. So for example, uh, different species might differ in the shape of, of the chambers, the horizontal shape of the chambers, in, in the size of the chambers, in whether the chambers are circular or lobed or very elongate. Uh, so many different kinds of chamber shapes. And independent of that is also the spacing of the chambers uh, from one another. So you can have ant nests, uh, some species of ants uh, place the chambers very far apart. Others put them very close together. And of course, the number of chambers and uh, the shaft itself can be angled or uh, in in a few species it's actually a, a helix like a spiral staircase so uh, when you when you allow the variation of these components of the ant nest you can generate uh, the the appearance of all these different species of ants but the basic pattern is this uh, what i call the shish kebab structure which is a vertical shaft and horizontal chambers. The variation can be enormous. I mean, you can, uh, some ants make nests that are uh, only 20, 
20, 25 centimeters deep. Others uh, make nests that are four or five meters deep and, uh, and quite large in aerial extent too. The extremes are the, the fungus gardening ants of the tropics that make nests that are often uh, 15 meters deep and have, uh, well, there's a group in, in Brazil that's made casts of uh, leafcutter ants that require 10 tons of cement to cast. So that gives you an idea of the, the range of size and scale that you find among ant nests. Do those nests seem uh, to be similar within one species of ants? Yes. Uh, within a species, there is a species-typical structure. And uh, it's mostly in the relationship of the parts, because obviously a small ant colony will make a smaller nest uh, than a large ant colony of the same species. But the proportions of the parts are similar so that you can actually recognize uh, the species typical architecture of, uh, of a species as the colonies get bigger and the nests get enlarged. Yes, so that's that's very much true. Sorry, I was just wondering whether it's possible to diagnose the colony health, for example, based on the structure of the nests. The colony health. Well, uh, uh, I'm not sure what independent means you'd have of, of determining colony health. Um, probably the rate of, of brood production would be one way. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think that's going to be highly related to, it's more related to size, to colony size. So big colonies make big nests and little colonies make little nests. Just as an example, I mean, I've done a lot of work with um, harvester ants, the Florida harvester ant, and a founding nest uh, that, uh, that's made by a newly mated queen is about 15 or 20 centimeters deep and has two or three chambers, each one the size of a, you know, I don't know, a Swiss franc, I guess. And uh, then uh, at, at the other end, at the other extreme, are mature colonies that are um, three and a half meters deep and with a total volume of chambers of about 10 liters. So you can see. And yet over that range of, of size variation, you can still recognize the, the characteristics of a nest of Florida harvester ant, the proportions, the chamber shapes, the nature of the shaft that uh, attaches them, the spacing of the chambers, those are all characteristic that uh, those are all proportions that are retained throughout the growth of that, that colony from tiny to huge. But what kind of lessons can we learn from these creatures? Well, I don't know. It sort of depends on what lessons you want to learn. Uh, there's, I'm not sure there are practical lessons. Uh, you know, some people say, well, maybe we can learn about human architecture from studying ant nests, but no, I don't think so. 
because uh, the ant nest is an evolved entity and it's not planned by an architect. There's nobody draws plans of it. And it's the outcome of, uh, of uh, a bunch of workers working in the dark without a leader and they produce this marvelous structure. So yeah, thinking about it, maybe the whole idea of self-organization would be something we can take away from Ant Nest because I have this feeling that uh, self-organization is an attribute which is underappreciated in human society, but it, it's probably pretty important and functional. Oh, you're so right. And especially when it comes to robotics, isn't it? When we want to make swarm robots, it's uh, it would be really useful to know these uh, uh, rules of uh, the sociality. Yes, and that uh, that's why computer scientists have been attracted to social insects uh, and how they operate. Because after all, um, these abilities of social insect colonies do not reside in the individual worker. They're actually the outcome of the interaction and the actions of the entire colony, or at least large components of it. So thinking about the bigger picture, what would be the key implications of exploring this field and some related ones on the social insects for our society, especially when it comes to environmental protection? Well, you know, I'd, uh, <laughs> I'm probably a, a typical uh, biologist who doesn't, uh, who explores these things because I find them interesting and uh, and challenging. And I don't do it because I think there might be some future lesson or or practical application from what I do. I mean, I think that's pretty normal in science. If there, there are scientists that are working for toward an application, I mean, obviously there are lots of them, but there's also a, a large proportion of science which is not goal-directed. It's just an exploration. It's like going to a new continent and, and uh, exploring it. You don't know what you're going to find, but you're pretty sure it's going to be interesting. And that's the way I see the subject of internet architecture. When I started, at least, I had no idea what I was going to find, but it turned out to be quite interesting. And each, each thing I discovered would lead to, to more questions and more projects that uh, that that beg for an answer um i mean as an example we've known for a couple of you know century and a half that that ant colonies have a division of labor and that is that uh, that ants as they age worker ants as they age they uh, take on different tasks with the youngest workers taking care of the brood the older workers doing more general nest duties, food transport, and so on. And only the older, the oldest workers leaving the nest to forage for food. Uh, well, with my work, I was able to show that actually this progression is organized in three dimensions within the ant nest. That was an aspect that, that hadn't been appreciated before, but the division of labor is an integral part of the architecture and how the architecture is used. 
so that the youngest workers are born near the bottom of the nest where there's where the brood is they take care of their brood and as they age they move upward in the nest to change nest duties to more general maintenance and so on and then only the oldest workers leave the nest to forage so um showing that 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 was a functional aspect of the social organism was one of the challenges they undertook and i did some experiments that were actually quite they were difficult and uh and i thought they were pretty neat but then you know that's because i did it <laughs> um so like I say, then, um, scientists of my ilk explore because we are explorers. We, we, we're like finding new places in, the, in a continent and uh, revealing them to others, which is what I've tried to do in this book. But I've also, um, I mean, one of the take-homes from my book is that you don't have to have a lot of fancy equipment to do good significant and interesting science so most of the stuff that i write about in this book is it's cheap it doesn't cost much it may cost a lot of muscle power but and and money it isn't a lot i, I started my graduate career using really expensive instruments you know tens of thousands of dollars work worth of instruments and gradually over the years i've gone to simpler and simpler methods and uh, uh now you know my my main tools are a shovel and plastic bags and an ability to count so um that's one of the, the things that that this book is about and then uh in the book i describe how i solved the various problems that came up the things i wanted or needed to do and the way i solved them in uh rather simple ways that you couldn't you couldn't just buy off the shelf you had to solve these problems both physical and experimental myself so that i could proceed i mean the most obvious thing is of course i had to produce a, a method for melting metal in the field and that took me a while to develop it involved a lot of remembering my high school physics and the chemistry. Uh, but, uh, you know, over a period of about a year, I, I managed to do it. And there were a lot of other little problems that I had to solve. Hands-on curiosity and problem solving. Yeah, well, I very early learned um, that when you design an experiment, that in, the, in your mind, you have to design the perfect experiment you have to design ex you have to decide exactly what you need to do in order to unambiguously answer the question that you're asking and there's a lot of experiments that do that very poorly there actually it's the tendency to be pretty sloppy about that so i always did that and then i went through what I needed to do, and I asked the question, is it possible to do this? So the first thing was design it right. Second, is it possible to do this experiment? And if not, how can we go get around the problems that I can't solve and so on? 
So that's that's been my my philosophy. I mean, as an example of applying this principle, uh, once I had figured out uh, a lot about the the underground architecture of uh, the Florida harvester ant, the question obviously is, uh, well, is is this what the ants intend to build? I mean, is it the accidental outcome of something or do they have, uh, if I can use the word in quotations, do they have an opinion about what a uh, harvester ant nest should look like underground? And obviously in order to test that experimentally, I would have to build underground nests of different designs and then have the ants move into them and see whether they accepted them as they were or whether they modified them. Well, if you think about it, it's not that, not that straightforward to build an underground nest. You'll make hollow space underground. So after mulling this over for, I don't know, I kept coming back to it over and over. How can I did this? So finally, it came to me that if I froze uh, ice, froze water into ice that had the shapes of the chambers that I wanted to produce underground and then buried these frozen pieces and connected them with a, with a tube, which I could later pull out to make the connecting shaft, then I could create anything I wanted underground. So that's what I did. I made molds, I made the chambers in various shapes, I, um, I would bury these in the ground. And to show that I was really producing uh, ant nests that looked like harvester ant nests, I, I made aluminum casts of them. And sure enough, it looks just like a harvester ant nest. So then with this method, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I, I built harvester ant nests that were flipped upside down. So rather than having the largest chambers at the top, as they do naturally, I put the largest chambers at the bottom and I changed the spacing and the shapes of the chambers and so on and so forth. And then in each case, I got a harvester ant colony to move into them. And after uh, a week or two, I would make a cast of that nest and see how they had modified it or whether they had modified it. And what I found was that when I built a nest, uh, an ice nest, that looked like a real harvester ant nest with big chambers at the top and small ones at the bottom. The ants moved in with very little modification. But if I reversed it, they didn't like that at all. So they would take that little chamber at the top, greatly enlarge it, and the big chambers at the bottom, they would partially fill with sand. So it's clear they have an opinion of what uh, a harvester ant should look like. So in that sense, they have a plan, but uh, like I told you before, it doesn't reside in any individual. It's the emergent outcome of the whole colony's activity. The harvester ants, <laughs> real estate, that's fascinating. Oh, they're lovely ants. They're my favorites. <laughs> and after a long dig in a field, as you said, uh, you normally do for your, for your work, do you ever feel like their ants are still crawling up your leg, for example? <laughs> no. Harvester ants are they're not very aggressive. So 
you know, there's no, I mean, when they do sting you, it really hurts, but, but I don't get stung very often. Um, and I'm just careful to, to, uh, to pick up all the ants that fall into the pit with me. Now with fire ants, it was a different story. I mean, I worked on fire ants for 25 years and being stung during the collection and manipulation was pretty normal. And I, I must have, in the aggregate, had thousands of stings, but they, they weren't, it just didn't bother me that much. They go away after a day or so. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Well, I am retired, but that doesn't mean much uh, to me. <laughs> uh, I work mostly here at home uh, and at my field sites in the National Forest south of Tallahassee. And I've gotten very interested in what life is like at different uh, scales. So ants, of course, we think of them as small, but there are, there are other species of ants that are much smaller than any you've probably ever noticed. So I'm working on a really tiny ant right now. It's called Phydolia adrianoi. And the average worker weighs about three quarters as much as the average grain of sand in which they nest. So they are living at a really tiny scale of basically nesting in a pile of boulders. And I'm very interested in what life is like at that scale. For one thing, at our scale, human scale, we are accustomed to a world which is dominated by the forces of inertia and uh, gravity and momentum and so on and so forth. At the scale at which these ants live, uh, those, those forces are, are just, the world is not dominated by them. The world, their world is dominated by, by molecular forces. So things like adhesion and um, surface tension and viscosity and so on and so forth. So if you think of a flying insect, of, uh, of that size, they actually, when they fly, they're actually not flying through the air, they're actually swimming through the air. And all their morphological adaptations are those that you need to swim. Um, so their, 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 their world is just radically different from ours. And I like to imagine what that's like. Scale is so important and so underappreciated. We are as humans, I think we're scale chauvinists and we, we don't imagine what the world is like for animals of different scales. For example, uh, whales are living at still a larger scale. Uh, they can communicate over a distance of 600 kilometers. They, can, uh, they actually fly through water. Their water, the viscosity of water in relation to their body mass is. Uh, is like that of a bird flying through the air. So they're, again, they're, their world is just really different. I don't know if that is a satisfactory answer, but uh, yeah, I, I have these little tiny ants on my desk here that I made some nests, uh, vertical nests, and I can see everything they do. I have a video camera that's set up. I can record anything they do. 
by the way, I, a lot of these videos are on my YouTube channel and uh, it's just lovely to watch. It's better than TV by far. Oh, that sounds super interesting. Hope you write a book and come talk to us about it. Well, maybe someday I will if I find out enough about it. And where would be the best way for our uh, listeners to find more information about your work and also your current book? Well, my current book is available uh, on Amazon and other booksellers. Uh, I'm not sure exactly who all carries it. Uh, there's also an audio book version of it, not read by me, but by an actor. Uh, and it's available as a, as a Kindle book. Uh, other ant books, I would suggest uh, the, the Bible of, of vermicologists, that is, people who work on ants, would be a book called The Ants by Hildobler and Wilson, which was published in 1990, so it's kind of old, but most of the basic information is still good. Then... Um, more recent books, uh, there's uh, a book by Mark Moffat, and let's see, who else was it? I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have this real handy to hand, but there are a number of, of, of books about ant biology. Some of them have a lot of pictures, and some of them are more academic. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm blanking on, on that. Well, of course, you can always go back to my book on fire ants. It's called The Fire Ants, which again is it's a more it's a, a book more oriented towards uh, practitioners of of uh, towards scientists, but um, it's like seven hundred and thirty pages. So you're talking about everything that we knew about fire ants in two thousand and six, and it also emphasizes uh, how we know what we know, what we don't know, and what we think we know, but don't really. So those are kind of the themes of that book. In a sense, that's the theme of my architecture book too. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.